everyone, and welcome to Unknown Friends, Season 2, Episode 9. This is my weekly book review podcast. Our episodes come out first thing every Wednesday morning, and I'm your host from Kitty Wayne Productions, Rochelle Ferguson. To access more Unknown Friends content, you can visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash unknownfriends, where you can learn about ways to partner with us in the creation of these book reviews, and in return, get access to bonus episodes and other perks. Thank you so much to those of you who've already joined the Unknown Friends community on Patreon, and thanks everyone for listening to today's episode. Now, The Wind in the Willows is our book of choice this week, written by Scottish author Kenneth Graham and published in 1908. So let's start by talking a little bit about Kenneth Graham. His life story is interesting and also painfully tragic, uh, which adds, I don't know if you'd call it irony or perhaps depth to the literature he wrote, mostly children's literature, charming, wholesome, carefree stories like The Wind and the Willows. Well, Graham lived from 1859 to 1932, so he lived 73 years. He was born the third of four children to an Edinburgh attorney and his wife. But uh, when Kenneth was just five, the family's first tragedy struck. His mother, just days after giving birth to her fourth child, Kenneth's little brother Roland, died of scarlet fever. And Kenneth actually caught the fever as well and survived it, but his lungs were never the same after that. Well, Kenneth's father couldn't really cope after the loss of his wife. He sent his children to live with their maternal grandmother out in the countryside in Berkshire near the River Thames, and he himself uh, resorted to drink. And while he lived 20 more years, he never really resumed the responsibility of raising his own children, except for one brief stint when Kenneth was eight, uh, which did not work out. So Kenneth was raised by his grandmother, uh, and his uncle also was part of his life. His uncle was a curate in Berkshire and helped teach the children about boating on the River Thames, which of course shows up in The Wind in the Willows and gives us one of the book's most famous lines. Uh, There's absolutely nothing half so much worth doing as simply messing about in boats, though the water rat tells them all in chapter one. Anyway, Kenneth and his older brother Willie went to school in Oxford at St. Edward's Preparatory School, and Kenneth did very, very well, both academically uh, and also athletically. He became captain of the rugby team. But there, the second tragedy struck. When Kenneth was just 15, his brother Willie died from a lung infection quite suddenly. Uh, And shortly after, Kenneth was disappointed in his educational hopes. He had wanted to attend Oxford University, but his family couldn't afford it. So instead, he was set up working in the Bank of England as a clerk, where he would stay for about 30 years, rising through the ranks until he uh, eventually served as the bank secretary for his last uh, 10 years or so there. 
Meanwhile, he started writing. So throughout his 20s and 30s, he was mostly composing poems and essays, and he did achieve a little success. He published a couple collections of his short writings. Then in 1899, he finally married, and he and his wife, Elspeth, had one child in the year 1900, a boy named Alastair. Alistair was born prematurely and with a congenital cataract that caused him to be blind in one eye and have a severe squint in the other. And historians also wonder if he might have had some other uh, undiagnosed condition. We can't really know, uh, but it seems he was, for probably a variety of reasons, a troubled child. Uh, by all accounts, Kenneth and Elspeth's marriage was not great, and they were absent from their son a lot while he was in boarding school, although in another sense it seems Alistair was spoiled. Either way, um, the boy found school difficult. He attended rugby school for only six weeks before being moved to Eton, but there he had a nervous breakdown. Eventually, he did make it to Oxford University thanks to contacts Kenneth had there, but there he struggled as well. And ultimately, in May of 1920, before he was quite 20 years old, Alistair took his own life, uh, bringing tragedy again into his family. Kenneth and Elspeth moved to Italy for a while following their son's suicide, but eventually returned to England. And Kenneth died in Berkshire in 1932 after a brain hemorrhage, while Elspeth lived until 1946. So remarkable sadness surrounds this book, The Wind and the Willows. Uh, of course, it was published in 1908 when Alistair was still a child. And it actually originated from a series of stories Kenneth made up to entertain his son. Uh, and Alistair was even partially the inspiration for one of the main characters, Mr. Toad of Toad Hall. So it's perhaps strange that this story came out of this man's life, um, but strange or not, it is a delightful story, beautifully written, uh, it's hilarious and heartwarming, and absolutely a classic that I think it would do anyone and everyone good to read. Uh, so I had read The Wind in the Willows as a child, or more likely, uh, my parents read it to me. I'm not sure I had ever read it on my own. But just this year, I realized it was high time I pull this supposedly children's book off the shelf and read it again. But um, this was not just an arbitrary choice to reread The Wind and the Willows. I was first reminded of how long it had been since I'd read it by a quote posted online by a Facebook friend. One of my Hillsdale College classmates shared a quotation from another children's author, A.A. A. Milne of Winnie the Pooh fame, in which he praises The Wind and the Willows in terms that made me feel quite strongly that I needed to reread it. Let me share with you A.A. Milne's words about this book. He says, One does not argue about the wind and the willows. The young man gives it to the girl with whom he is in love, and if she does not like it, asks her to return his letters. The older man tries it on his nephew and alters his will accordingly. The book is a test of character. 
we can't criticize it because it is criticizing us. But I must give you one word of warning. When you sit down to it, don't be so ridiculous as to suppose that you are sitting in judgment on my taste or on the art of Kenneth Graham. You are merely sitting in judgment on yourself. You may be worthy, I don't know, but it is you who are on trial. So that's A.A. Milne's opinion of Kenneth Graham's book, and as you might expect, this caught my attention, and I pretty quickly picked up The Wind and the Willows and reread it after I'm not sure how many years away from it. So if you're not familiar with the story, it follows four central characters, Mole, Rat, Toad, and Badger. Rat is my personal favorite, although Mole too is very lovable, and Each character is funny and charming in his own way. But we start the story with Mole. Uh, If you're one of those who has already joined me on Patreon and listened to the bonus preview episode I posted at the end of February, then you got to hear the whole first chapter of The Wind and the Willows, which I read aloud in that episode, and so you already know how the story starts. Uh, Mole is spring cleaning his little home and feels this longing to get outside and explore and journey. And he soon meets a new friend, a water rat who lives along the riverbank and befriends Mole and begins teaching him about river life. They go boating and have a picnic and Rat invites Mole to hang out at his house for a while so that they can continue their riverside enjoyments throughout the summer. So Mole and Rat become fast friends, and we then meet Toad of Toad Hall, whose most distinctive feature is that he is always blindly enraptured with some new thing, some hobby Uh, particularly methods of transportation. So once upon a time, he was all taken up with boating and with houseboating, but now he's got a little uh, horse-drawn cart or caravan, and he's all into the idea of life out on the open road. So Mole and Rat join him for a little while and enjoy a jaunt through the country, but eventually when they leave the country lanes and come upon the high road, a motor car races past and upsets their horse and cart. And Rat and Mole, understandably, are frustrated. But Toad is smitten with the motor car. So from then on, his caravan is a thing of the past, and he decides to take up motor cars and go driving about the country all the time. Then, lastly, we meet Mr. Badger, who makes his home in the wild wood, into which Mole wanders and gets lost one night. He lets his curiosity and pride get the better of him and goes out exploring without Rat, who's the one who knows the way. But Mole gets lost, and Rat goes out after him and finds him, and together they find Mr. Badger's home, who hospitably takes them in for the night and feeds them. And he, too, becomes their friend. Though he is a bit gruffer and more aloof than any of the other characters, still, he's a good friend in his way. So, you are now introduced to the main 
cast of four characters, and the rest of the book is a chronicle of several of their adventures. Toad gets himself in trouble with the law thanks to his motor car schemes, even after his friends try to have an intervention and protect him from his own foolishness. Uh, He lands in jail and escapes, and is almost caught and escapes again, and he's just a mess. Uh, but meanwhile, there's there's a lovely chapter where Mole briefly encounters his old home again and shows Rat around. Um, there's also a chapter where Rat is almost lured away from his beloved river after meeting a fellow rat who's a traveler and adventurer and talks of all the places he's seen. There is a chapter where Mole and Rat have a kind of encounter with the divine, which is intriguing. And, well, in the long run, uh, the story culminates when Toad finally returns to his friends after all his adventures, and he finds that in his absence, uh, weasels and stoats have taken over his home, Toad Hall, and the four friends have to scheme and fight to reclaim his home from their enemies. And might I just add, it's in this final episode that one of my new favorite book quotations ever appears. The four animals are planning their method of attack against the intruders at Toad Hall. And first Mole talks about that they will sneak into the house And then Rat eagerly adds that they'll be well-armed, and Badger jumps in and says they'll rush in upon their enemies. And finally, Toad, running around the room and jumping over chairs, exclaims that they will whack em and whack em and whack em. And that's my new favorite phrase. Uh, It's really astonishing how many opportunities one can find to speak of whacking things in everyday life. Um, I now say that I'll whack them and whack them and whack them when I'm baking, like beating eggs or something, Um, or when I'm, you know, cleaning, shaking out rugs or whatever, Uh, or of course, when I'm describing any kind of confrontation, uh, physical, verbal, or otherwise. It's just remarkably useful. So I I encourage you to follow my example in this. There's nothing that relieves the burdened spirit quite as much as saying, let's whack them and whack them and whack them. Anyway, uh, pardon the rabbit trail. Another interesting note, uh, thinking through the book's storyline, and especially thinking of it in comparison to last week's book, Virgil Wander, which is not really an obvious comparison, but what's interesting is that The Wind and the Willows is another book that draws from the classics, the ancient epics, and particularly the Odyssey, not just implicitly, but even explicitly, like Virgil Wander does. So Leif Enger compared his character Nadine to Penelope, the wife of Homer's hero Odysseus, and Kenneth Graham in The Wind and the Willows compares his final chapter to the return of the hero Odysseus to his home in the Odyssey. Graham's last chapter is actually titled The Return of Ulysses, and Ulysses is uh, the Roman equivalent for the name Odysseus in Greek, so that's where the connection is explicitly made. And throughout The Wind in the Willows, you can hear echoes of Homer's odyssey and the animals' various adventures uh, and the temptations they face and the heroic traditions they abide by. 
And you hear echoes of other Greek and Roman classics too, like the pastoral ideal that you'll find in the poetry of Virgil and others. Um, that's very present in the way Kenneth Graham depicts the Edwardian English countryside, the refuge you find in nature, in the simple life, away from the cares of the wider world. And also mythology, uh, even an encounter with the divine, like I mentioned, shows up in this book. In the chapter titled The Piper at the Gates of Dawn, Rat and Mole go looking for a lost child, the son of Mr. Otter, and they find him being protected from harm by Pan, who is the Greek god of nature, basically, rural life. And this experience is truly an uh, epiphany for rat and mole, a kind of religious experience that's really fascinating to read. Uh, and it's shaped in large part by the tradition of classical mythology. And just all over the book, you see influences from literature across the centuries. The next to last chapter, the penultimate chapter, which is more fun to say, is titled Like Summer Tempests Came His Tears, which is a reference to a poem by Alfred Lord Tennyson. And that's just one of the more obvious allusions. Uh, what's really amazing is just how very well-educated Kenneth Graham was and how that infuses his writing effortlessly, it seems like, and elevates what could appear to be a simple comic children's story to the level of something much richer and more profound than it seems at first glance. So what are the themes that deepen this adventure and show its wisdom? The first that comes to my mind is friendship. These four friends, Mole, Rat, Badger, and Toad, uh, bear with one another, encourage and comfort each other, they teach each other and at times rebuke each other, and just their faithful commitment to one another throughout all their adventures is, you could argue, the heart of the story. It's lovely how each of them complements the others and helps strengthen where another is weak. Um, and as for other themes, definitely through Toad's many adventures, Graham deals with the flaws of both vanity and inconstancy. Uh, so the book teaches us about humility and about patience and perseverance uh, and also hospitality. And perhaps as much or more than anything else, it considers the interwoven themes of home and longing. In the very first chapter, in the opening sentences, we see Mole spring cleaning his home and being overwhelmed by a spirit of divine discontent and longing, which pulls him up and out of his home and leads him into all the friendships and adventures of the story. And a vacillation between home and travel fills the book. The characters love the security and comfort and simple delights of their homes, Mole's home, Rat's, Badger's, and Toad Hall. These are places of familiarity and stability and community. And I think ultimately home triumphs over uh, travel in the story. When we get the last chapter, The Return of Toad to His Ancestral Home, 
um, after driving out the the stoats and weasels from Toad Hall. And then the four friends host a banquet there. But at continual intervals throughout the story, each character is drawn or tempted to leave home for some reason. Mole's original departure from home, inspired by that spirit of divine discontent and longing, seems to be a good thing. It brings him into fellowship with other animals and introduces him to all kinds of delights, like boating and picnicking. But it's like he finds a new home uh, with friends, as opposed to him leaving home in a, in a wandering, well, homeless kind of way. Um, but a temptation to wandering is what both Rat and Toad face at different times. Rat is almost led by tales of, of distant places to abandon his home, but Mole keeps him from going, and ultimately Rat is thankful for that. Uh, Toad, of course, does leave home on continual excursions and is forcefully kept from home for a while during his imprisonment. But while he's in jail, he longs to be back at home, and he eventually gets there. But Kenneth Graham honestly portrays these two longings that pull us in opposite directions, toward the comfort of home on the one hand, and toward the thrill of journeying on the other. And the thing is, in the end, he doesn't necessarily say that one is bad and the other good. But instead, I think he presents community as sort of the ultimate good. So Mole's response to the longing for something beyond his home was good because it brought him into community. But in general, Graham seems to present home more positively than, than wandering because, first and foremost, it enables community in a way that wandering doesn't. I suppose a group of travelers could explore and find adventures together, but generally speaking, that's a more solitary pursuit. It's certainly difficult to get a very large community together on a unified journey. So my interpretation is that Kenneth Graham acknowledges the natural longing to leave home and experience something beyond, and he doesn't condemn that. But in the end, he brings us back to the beauty and goodness of home as a place where community can best flourish. Um, and so for that reason, as well as for other reasons, I think the story affirms that home is the best place to be. Now, I need to bring this episode in for a landing. So I just want to conclude with a passage from Lewis's essay on stories in which he discusses the characters of The Wind and the Willows and the effect the story has on us as readers. I just thought Lewis's thoughts here were so wise and articulate, of course, and so I knew you guys would enjoy hearing his reflections. He starts by talking specifically about the character Toad and explaining that the particular choice of animal here was not arbitrary on Graham's part, but was probably because a toad's face bears a sort of resemblance to a human face. And we are, of course, to see ourselves in the animal characters of The Wind and the Willows. But then Lewis continues in this way. But why should the characters be disguised as animals at all? The disguise is very thin, so thin that Graham makes Mr. Toad on one occasion comb the dry leaves out of his hair. 
yet it is quite indispensable. If you try to rewrite the book with all the characters humanized, you are faced at the outset with a dilemma. Are they to be adults or children? You will find that they can be neither. They are like children insofar as they have no responsibilities, no struggle for existence, no domestic cares. Meals turn up, one does not even ask who cooked them. In that way, the life of all the characters is that of children for whom everything is provided, and who take everything for granted. But in other ways, it is the life of adults. They go where they like and do what they please. They arrange their own lives. To that extent, the book is a specimen of the most scandalous escapism. It paints a happiness under incompatible conditions, the sort of freedom we can have only in childhood and the sort we can have only in maturity, and conceals the contradiction by the further pretense that the characters are not human beings at all. The one absurdity helps to hide the other. It might be expected that such a book would unfit us for the harshness of reality and send us back to our daily lives unsettled and discontented. I do not find that it does so. The happiness which it presents to us is, in fact, full of the simplest and most attainable things. Food, sleep, exercise, friendship, the face of nature, even, in a sense, religion. That simple but sustaining meal of bacon and broad beans and a macaroni pudding, which Rat gave to his friends, has, I doubt not, helped down many a real nursery dinner. And in the same way, the whole story, paradoxically enough, strengthens our relish for real life. This excursion into the preposterous sends us back with renewed pleasure to the actual. So I can say from my experience rereading The Wind in the Willows as an adult that it does indeed renew the relish with which we return to real life. And I'm so glad I was prompted to enjoy this classic once again, and I commend it to you as well. Of course, I cannot cover all the themes and nuances in a story so uh, skillfully and winsomely written as this one, so I do hope you read or reread the book for yourself. And feel free to message me with your thoughts on it as well. You can send me a message on Facebook, Instagram, Patreon, or through my website, all linked in today's episode description. Thanks for listening, and to look ahead to next week, for our 10th episode of Season 2, we will be discussing The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis himself. Um, as strange as it may sound, if you're familiar with the content of the Screwtape Letters, this is one of my very favorite books ever. I return to it again and again, and I get more from it each time. It's just so full of insight. So I do hope you will join me next week for that review. As always, I'm Rochelle Ferguson of Kitty Wham Productions, and to learn more about me and the stage plays and skits I write, you can visit my website, kittywhamproductions.com. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs> <laughs>